Well, g'day there, podcast listeners. Thanks again for giving me your attention. It means the world to me that you would listen to the content that I am putting out. Hey, listen, if you're getting value, would you do me a favor? And whatever platform you're on, would you please rate, review, and subscribe? And that'll help me because it'll put the message in front of more people. Well, in this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. Instead of a fireside chat around the boardroom table, which we've done for you before, today we're actually going to cut to a talk that I gave recently down at Mark and Darlene Czech's church, where I spoke to their business people about the high-level things of the kingdom, how to do our assignment, how to change culture, and how to use our businesses to facilitate that. It was a great session, very interactive, and I'm sure you're going to like it too. Let's cut right now to that live session, and I'll check back in with you at the end. Thanks, Dave, for the invitation. Um, you know, for those of you that live in this area, you, you, you may or may not realize, but you actually have probably one of the preeminent generals in the faith that is in your midst here with Dave. He fully understands um, kingdom impact and kingdom assignment, and, uh, and he's right on your doorstep, so... Um, you would do well to get up alongside him and glean from him because he has an amazing understanding of um, how church world and marketplace can work very, very well together because he's been positioned to kind of dance between both. So I just want to champion him. He's one of those few voices that has that anointing and, um, and he's a good dude too. So thank you. Uh, I want to explore, are my slides next? Is that how this works? I want to explore just first of all, what is kingdom business? You know, because for, for far too long in the faith, there has been a huge separation between um, the clergy, if you like, and the marketplace. And um, there is some thinking uh, about a sacred secular divide. It's like the best thing you could do with your life apparently is to start a church. Now, when I first became a believer, 23rd of September 2004, everyone told me afterwards, you've got this passion and this zeal, you, sh- you would make a great pastor. And every single time somebody said that to me, a little bit of me died, right? Because I could not think of anything worse. Now, I love my pastor, like I love pastors, but like for me, I, you know, like it, it, was, it was not sitting well with me. Um, and if I be totally honest, because this conversation we're having today was not everywhere, I bought into the notion that that's probably what I had to do. And I got to the point where I said to the Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do, but I'll hate it if it's running a church. But I'll do it, but I'll hate it. But I'll do it because I love you, but I'll hate it as if you needed reminding. <laughs> and, and that conversation went on for a long time until I discovered that God has a lot to say about the marketplace and how we trade and those sort of things. And, and, and so for me, we, you know what? I, I, I don't know about you, but I find that even somebody who talks about this topic all the time, it's very easy for my mind to go back to um, some of the traditional thinking uh, that hasn't worked. So we have to keep having this conversation, I think, until it becomes our norm that when, you know, people would say to me, you should join the ministry, you know, and, 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 and it used to really frustrate me because there was an elitist feel about the way they would say, you should join the ministry, and the way I saw it was, you know, the day I became a full-time minister was the day I became a full-time Christian, right? There, there, there was no choice. Um, it just didn't look like uh, pulpits and altar calls. It looked like boardrooms and water coolers. 
but to me they were just as anointed as I had read scripture. So, and so, you know, that, that's really the conversation. You know, there is no second rate. There's no pecking order of calls. There is wherever God's got you to be. And, uh, and if that's business, then I personally believe that you could probably have a greater impact on the Great Commission in the marketplace than you potentially can running a church, all right? By the way, I said, you know, greater, I didn't say like better or more important in the kingdom. In terms of numbers, though, I think you can have a greater impact. And so that's, that's really what I want to get to. But if we're going to look at this, this concept of kingdom business, then we need to find out where it all went wrong, okay? So, um, you know, if we want to look at this culture, and, and, and if you were to open the Australian this morning, um, I didn't, uh, I normally do, but I didn't this morning, you would have read stories of, um, you know, overthrowing of a CEO, uh, an, uh, you know, a hostile takeover. Uh, you, you would have read about, you know, these corrupt businesses. You would have seen sh- share traders who are raiding companies, um, you know, a- and all of that playing out in our tabloids, in our marketplace. And the very nature of our uh, capital markets and our business world is greed and self-interest and I don't care about what happens to you. I've just got to get a shareholder return and I'll cross any moral boundary to get that. Okay, that, that's the world that we live in. Wall Street, you know, you, know you, you saw the movie Wall Street probably, Gordon Gecko, you know, greed is good. Like this is, this is the, the strong man that has taken over the world. Um, and that, the world that we live in today, this self-interest, self, you know, self-seeking, um, you know, money at any cost started actually just after Noah. Um, if we want to take this culture right back to its roots, it started with Noah's grandson, great-grandson. He had a grandson called Cush, and Cush had a son called Nimrod. Uh, and we learn about this uh, right back in Genesis. And so here's the scripture. Um, so Nimrod was made a mighty warrior. It says there, hunter, another word is warrior. He was made a mighty warrior by God. So Nimrod was physically tall, physically strong, military-minded, and he was a strategy guy. And he was designed that way to be part of God's people. But he turned against God, as we read, and he started um, Babylon. And as you read some of those areas, you know, we know that you know, he, the centers of his kingdom were Babylon. And you read a few more there, like Assyria, not a great place. Nineveh, not a great place. And so we know that this kingdom of Babylon that was first started by Nimrod is an ugly place. So um, what is it? Nimrod's kingdom, Babylon, is exactly what we see today. It was a kingdom of, of me first, crush everybody, elitist, um, you know, kings and serfs, just me, the few elites at the top and everybody working for me, horrible conditions, as long as I get what I want. And so not a great place, right? And that culture, that Babylonian culture, that event where he stood against God took place probably in modern day Syria, in the middle of modern day Syria, it's probably where that event took place. And that culture moved north and east through the countryside until it had taken over the whole countryside, and then it moved, basically enveloped the entire world. To the point where, fast forward to 2019, the Babylonian culture is in every people group, every nation, every family, business, and church to some degree. And our job as entrepreneurs is to be able to spot Babylon in our lives and in our businesses, and then kick that thing out. Because here's what we do know. We have no chance of taking out an enemy that we are complicit with. We have no chance of taking out the enemy if we're also complicit with the enemy in our dealings. Does that make sense? 
Like, if, if I'm sure we all want to see revival and we all want to see, you know, the nations discipled. I'm sure we do. But what, we can't have that thought and then be ripping people off. We, we can't stand down an enemy that we are in bed with at the same time, right? So that's why, and by the way, Babylon is everywhere. We all have it. And you should not be afraid of finding it. You sh- one, of, one of the greatest prayers that you and I could be praying on a daily basis is, Lord, show me where Babylon is in my life. Because he will, and he's not going to mark you down for it. He wants it out more than you do. So he's going to show you little areas where you can improve and get better and spot this stuff and kick it out. Because the more kingdom that's in you and the less Babylon that's in you, the better character you have. And character is the variable for kingdom success. We read, it wasn't the most skilled people in Scripture that did the greatest work. It was the people that had a heart after God. Some people had lost it all and, and turned to Him. And so in that, they were able to be trusted with an awful lot of kingdom assignment. And, and that's our role today. So that's kind of where it starts. Um, and, uh, and I want to kind of paint a bit of a picture and get you to see practically the difference. I want to paint a dichotomy between God's kingdom and the kingdom of Babylon. Because I think, I think if we can start to see a big difference, then we can start to go, oh, okay, that dealing, that was kingdom. That dealing, that was Babylon. This opportunity in front of me, that's kingdom. Or this opportunity in front of me is Babylon. If we can start to see, and by the way, I'm just using those words so we have common language. You call it whatever you like. But we've got to be able to spot a difference between God's way of doing business and the world's way. Okay, because if we're complicit, it won't work. So let's take, for example, the top one, right? Let's, what do we learn from Solomon? Well, um, Solomon, I mean, you know the guy, right? It, it, ends, it ends pretty average. But, but what can we learn about Solomon? You know, all of the wealth that came to him was used for his assignment. And none of it was to puff up his own empire. And his, he knew exactly what God wanted him to do. And everything that came to him was, due, was used for his assignment. And he had a massive amount of wealth coming through. I mean, just for example, there is one cheeky little line in Scripture that talks about the ships of Tarshish, right? I mean, it's just one thing. The ships of Tarshish, he never asked for them. He never requested it. But every three or four years, they would go on a journey to pick up gold from the surrounding places, and they would bring it to him and just give it to him. Now, we're talking 666 tons of gold, right? I'd take that. And so, and so but what did he use it for? He used it for his assignment, okay? And they, they covered the walls with it, and they did all the things they needed to do with it. So there was no greed inside of him in those early years. Now, unfortunately, right, what happens when you have that many wives and that many porcupines is life gets really awkward, Right? And, um, and actually, I'll tell you what's super interesting is that, you know, what started his downfall was that he partnered with the God of Amalek um, um, through, you know, too many, too many wives and, and, and so forth. And that became his big downfall. Now, just as a complete side note, for those of you that would like to take down abortion, um, praying to take down abortion is a good thing, but praying against the actual spirit of abortion would make sense. And the spirit of abortion is the God of Amalek because they used to drive swords into the tummies of pregnant ladies. Okay, that's what the God of Amalek used to, it was child sacrifice. And so that's what you should stand down if you want to pray for, for abortion. All right, so, so Solomon, right? His whole worldview is everything that comes to me is for my assignment. What about Judas? 
This guy that would say comments like, that's way too much money to spend on stuff. You should have given it to missions. Ever find yourself saying that to people when, when your pastor buys a new car or somebody's got something nice? Your first default thought is, well, that's a bit too much to spend. You shouldn't have bought an airplane. Could have given the money to missions. That's how Judas saw things as well. All right, so Judas's worldview was to be stealing, to be hiving off, and was to be self-interest. So Solomon, everything that comes to me is for my assignment. Judas, I've just got to be stealing out of this kitty because all I care about is me. All right, two very, very different people, and, and it didn't work out too well for Judas. What about the parable of the meaners? Well, what we learn about the parable of the meaners, and you know the story, um, uh, somebody grabs a whole bunch of people and says, I'm going to give you some money, I'm going away. When you come back, you're going to give an account for how much you have grown these, these talents. And, uh, and he comes back and, uh, and, uh, and they have to give an account. And, and some did incredibly well, some did okay, um, and then one person did really, really bad. Um, and, and, and what was taken, he, he, all his was taken off and, and so forth. But here's what's interesting. If you read the next part of Scripture from the story, the, the, the person that turned one mina into 10 was put over 10 cities. So, so if you want to look at growth for a kingdom entrepreneur, one mina, 10 minas, 10 cities in a very short period of time. Okay, so, so that is, the, I guess, the journey that you and I should be expecting. Right? We should be expecting that when we do things God's way and we trade that way, that we see big leaps in our progress. Right? Then compare that to the world that we live in today where you might put your money in a managed fund and get 9% on it. Now, by the way, it's not evil to put your money in a managed fund. But you, it takes a long time to double your money at a 9% return. Okay? So, and what's super interesting about managed funds, for example, is that that money's been traded on the capital markets. So you go to work all year, you neglect your health, your family, uh, your own sanity, because you work really hard and you make a profit, and you take some of that profit and you invest it, because that's what you should do. And by the way, that's a good thing. And you'll get your 9 to 11% return on your money. The people that trade your money locally, they will pick up three times as much as you did. Right? So the, the, people that are, the people that are trading your money are picking up more than you. Now you put in all the work, all the risk, neglected yourself. You, put, you did all of that. You put the money in. All they did was trade it a little bit and they made more than you did. But those people trade the money internationally. So the central banks, they can get 60% a month on your money that you went to work for. They've put up no risk, no effort. They got no downside because it's not theirs. They've only got upside, Right? That right there, so, so kingdom, one mina, ten minas, ten cities, Babylon, you put in all the effort and you get a fraction. You get, you get incremental returns on your growth. And, and, and by the way, it's not evil, but it's a hard way to fund the kingdom with, you know, 6% or 9% returns. All right, now here's, here's one that's a little bit fun. Uh, did you know that in Australia, if everybody was honest on their insurance claims our premiums would drop between 17 and 20% overnight, right? So, so what happens for most people is they go, my car was broken into, and when they fill in their claim form, yeah, there was an extra set of Prada sunglasses in the glove box that were never really there. Now, the insurance company don't care. They'll pay it because what are they going to do next year? Everybody's premiums go up to cover the fact that claims are up. 
if actually, if we were all just honest in our, that's just, I mean, I'm talking about something that's this big. If we were just a little bit honest, everybody would do well. See, the person, the person that says, I need to overclaim on my insurance is a person that says, I need to screw the system to get ahead. Right? That's Judas. What about paying taxes? Well, obviously, I, 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 it's the one day of my quarter that really upsets me. But I also know that it's a healthy part of community. I actually, as a, as, as a, as a person, I enjoy paying tax. I also feel like Australia gouges far too much being the highest tax nation in the world. Um, and we get very little stability for it and stuff like that. Like that, that I, I do. <laughs> I enjoy paying taxes. Um, just feel like they're a little high. Is that right? Yeah. Um, mongrel government. And, um, and but, but there is an honoring, I think, in paying taxes that it's easy to miss. For example, I meet a lot of people who do cash jobs, for example. And let's paint a picture, because it wouldn't be you guys, it would be the other the other people, but, but let's say, for example, you owned a mechanical workshop, let's say, and somebody came to you and they said, oh, you know, Auntie Beryl rolls up in her Mazda 121 um, and she says, my headlight is out. Can you help me? And you say, no worries. And so you say, bring your car up, you pop the bonnet, you put the headlight in and she says, how much is that? And you're like, oh, don't worry, you know, 20 bucks. And she says, no worries. And she opens her purse and moths go everywhere and she gives you $20. Now that $20, you, you slip it in your back pocket because you're busy and you forget about it. Who would have thought? Probably not by accident. And we don't declare it. Now I understand you might be sitting there thinking, well, what's the tax on 20 bucks and how does that really impact you know, a national economy? It's not about the economy. It's about our heart. For example, the person that takes 20 bucks and doesn't declare it so that they don't have to pay tax, is the same person that is saying, God, you're not big enough to be my source and supply. I need to rip off the tax man to get ahead. I need to look after myself. That heart is a corrupt heart. What did God say when it comes to paying taxes? We'll just go get it from a fish. There's more than enough around, right? So, so we've got to kind of get this understanding here that, that there are two kingdoms at war. And you know what? We can flirt with the lines of being relevant and being in the world and not of it. But if we become so in the world that we're like the world, we'll never pierce the heart of the world to show them another way. We have to be the ones that lead the way that say, actually, that deal, I'm not doing it that way. Right? And I had this story. I had a guy that was a good client, client that, you know, produced a lot of revenue in our businesses. And he came to me and... He wasn't malicious. He wasn't malicious trying to rip anybody off, but he came up with an idea that wasn't very good and he pitched it to me. And this was, you know, first on in my, in my business life. And I said yes to this deal that I knew was wrong. And I got so far in that it was like, oh man, you know, now we're creating invoices to, you know, tackle the fact that we got this revenue. And I said to him, mate, I'm, I'm really sorry. I've got this incredibly wrong. I can't do this, even though you know, he's losing the plot. You know, how can you, you can't tell me now that we're not doing it? And I was like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix this by paying my tax and your tax on this deal because I shouldn't have done it in the first place. Now, what does the guy think of a, of a person like that? 
So like that, why would you do what now you're paying my, and so that, that is a huge witness to somebody when you say to them, I've done the wrong thing and I'm going to go out of my way to fix it, right? That guy ended up coming to the Lord, which is an amazing story. So, <clears throat> all right, so, 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 so that's kind of like the differences. But, it, but how do we go and disciple nations? You know, like that's the great commission and the word nations there does not mean Australia and Brazil and, um, you know, Venezuela and whatever. The word nation is the word ethnos, people group. Okay, remember, Australia wasn't even around when this was written, right? Well, it was here, but it wasn't founded, um, certainly not by us. And, uh, and so, so how do we go and make disciples of nations? Because I think that it's a very different conversation on how do you disciple a nation versus how do you disciple a person. And there are some, obviously, there, there are obviously some similarities between how you do that. And we don't want to neglect one over the other. We have to disciple people. You know, we have a world that we live in today where we have, you know, a massive amount of converts with very little depth, right? You know, we have been so seeker sensitive that we have created a whole bunch of insipid, impotent believers. See, that wasn't Pastor Wes, was it? No, sorry, 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 not sorry. Um, now, that's okay. But, I mean, it, that's what today is about and all the other things going on around the world, trying to build depth in our believers so that they can stand and fight for their faith, so they can stand out and those sort of things. But, but what's really interesting is because I meet a lot of people, especially the evangelists, they are like, no, 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 no. You don't need to do any of this because Jesus has come back soon. All we need to do is populate heaven. Now, that's actually quite noble, and it's true, it's just not totally true. Like, it, as a statement, it's true. We should be about the Father's business to populate heaven. We should do that. That's a really good idea, right? However, as a single focus, we leave nations on the table when we focus on the gospel of salvation for an individual, right? This may not be new to some of you. But, but, here's, but here's what's really interesting. When I look through Scripture, I'm like, Show me stuff because, you know, I want to combat the, you know, the conversations that happen. And, and God shows me, well, when Jesus went and changed, you know, threw over the, the money tables, right? You remember that story? The one that everyone uses against me because I talk about money and being a Christian. Everyone's like, you can't serve two gods. And did you not read about them? I was like, did you not read about the money changes? You know, like, so it was, what I love about the story, it was so premeditated. He went and made a whip. <laughs> like, he didn't just go, oh, they're ticking me off. You know, like, he didn't snap. Um, but here's what he didn't do. Do you notice that Jesus didn't go into the temple and walk up to the Pharisees who are corrupt and say, oh, my dear brothers, God loves you so much. And your blessing is just around the corner. You know, and, and, and you just got to repeat after me and you can be saved. He didn't do that. He completely bankrupted their corrupt system. He, in that, that act, that was an act that tackled culture and not an act that tackled people. Does that make sense? He actually came to show a new way of doing things and, and he actually played for people groups as much as he did individuals. And so us as entrepreneurs in the marketplace, 
That's got to be a major focus for us. We are playing for cultural change. And in my experience, as we play for cultural change, we will also pick up people that want to come to Christ. We have people that come to Christ every year in our world. And I'll be honest with you, we don't go looking for them. We are just too busy running at something on behalf of the Lord that people that have a soft heart see it and want to come alongside. And for some people, some people they get convicted and they're like, I've been hideous in business. We didn't do that. The Lord convicts them. They come to Christ. They get discipled. They go and become amazing. So it's great to focus on salvation. Obviously, we need them. But I think as entrepreneurs, being placed in the marketplace, the gifts and talents that we have, it's playing small if all we're trying to do is run a business to evangelize a few people that work for us. That's, that's swimming in the shallow end of the pool. I think that if we play for culture, by default, more people will want to come to Christ because they're going to see you, witness you and go, far out, I don't understand what you're doing, but I can't not like it. Who is this God you serve? And by the way, that's a much easier person to lead to the Lord when their entire conversation is tell me more. So, so you know, that's, that's the gravity that I think we have and the joy that I think we have as marketplace people. That's why I said at the start of this little talk, like, I think it's probably one of the greatest places to go and have effect because we are shaping the mind in the very place that's corrupt and we are offering an alternative. And when you think about the fact that you can collaborate with the creator of the universe to go into a dark place and go be salty, why the heck would you worry about payroll this Friday? Why would you worry about the person that's gossiping, the staff member that's terrible? They're all this big, those issues, compared to the gravity of what we're called to do. And what that does is it gives you perspective that those little things, they're always going to happen. But I've got a big vision here and we're doing a great thing and I'm going to play full out and I'm running to the cross and that stuff is not going to stop me. Does that make sense? So that's kind of how I see things anyway. So I personally believe that when we go into business, we're called to make finance and influence. And when we do that, when we have a focus on both of those, we'll have our greatest impact. Now, finance is easy, right? Make more money than you need. That, that bit is very easy, okay? It doesn't always happen quickly. Um, you have to stay the long game. Making money in business, you know, maybe making enough for yourself is, you know, is okay. Going to get to the point where you make enough money that you can write, you know, good checks, that's, that's actually quite a long game in my experience, right? You know, like... Um, the two character traits you need to do well in business is you need to be hungry and you need to have internal fortitude because the journey is so long before it all comes together that you want to quit. And if you're like any other entrepreneur that I've ever met, you can have your best day and your worst day in the same day, right? So, so the journey is hard, um, and, but the payoff is great. It's just that it's so much longer than, we, than we're happy to do. But if you just get your head around the fact that it's a duty and a call, Okay, maybe we'll park there for a second. If you're called to the marketplace by God, you are an ambassador sent from heaven to have influence in the marketplace. That means that it's actually not based on results. Results are great, but you stay in it because you have a duty to use your gifts and talents where God's called you to be. 
You don't just go, oh, it's not working, so we'll go and be a pastor. Take the easy way out. <laughs> can we, we can edit these, eh, before um, Mark and Darlene and those wonderful people. Yeah, just edit that one out. The fact that we're even here says that these, those guys don't think the same as most. Um, <clears throat> so finance is easy, right? And, and by the way, like, you know, people say to me, God doesn't need your money. I don't know that that's true. I don't think he needs our money, but I think he wants us to play in such a way that we collaborate with him in money. Okay, let me try and say that differently. He doesn't like the Babylonian system of cash that we live with today, right? Like these, you know, we have these nice colored, you know, notes and stuff in our wallet. He, he doesn't, he didn't create that as a, as a monetary system and he doesn't even like it, but he'll get glory through it because he's not bothered. We created it, so he'll work with it, right? I, I personally think that, okay, God maybe doesn't need our money, but, he, but the local soup kitchen does and the local shelter for domestic violence does and the local church does and so forth. And I think he likes the fact that we can rely on each other through finances to bring God glory. So, so he, I don't think he's, he's not bothered in the least by money. Um, he, in fact, if somebody's got $60 billion, he's not bothered at all. He's looking way beyond the wallet uh, straight inside the heart. You know, he's not bothered by money. He's bothered by corruption. And so, so we, can, we, can, we can make as much money as we like. And it does not, it should not detract from our faith. I'm, I'm talking like there is no limit. There is no limit to the amount of money you can make in business. The only limit is your work ethic. That's the ceiling. Because you'll quit at some point and say, I've done enough. See, God's always got more innovation, more ideas, more things for you, always. It's sometimes along the journey, we can get tired and we go, you know what, I've, I've done enough. So we can make lots of money. By the way, what I'm saying here is we don't need much of it. We don't need much of it. This is where the money conversation has got it wrong because they think if you make a lot of money, then you are doing the wrong thing. No, 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 no. There is a difference between being highly profitable and highly wealthy. There's a massive difference between those two things. I only need a certain amount. If, if I only build a business, by the way, to achieve that amount that I need, I'm no different from the world. Does that make sense? That is the world system. Make enough that you're okay. So if I go into business and, and tap out when I've made enough for myself, that's the world system that hasn't worked. So the beauty of business is that we can just keep making and keep building. We, we can make these little fun tickets that are all different colors and then we can do good work with them. But we only need a certain amount. And let me tell you, it's less than you think. It's less than you think. You, you know, some of you are looking at me like, well, how do you know? There is no one amount, by the way. I'm just saying that, I met a guy the other day, he's like, oh, the Lord's asked me, you know, maybe not the Lord's, I'm going to buy a $5 million house. I'm like, why don't you buy a $4 million house? Then you could spend five years traveling first class around the world teaching people how to make money or whatever, like do your assignment. Like, like the difference between, you just don't need much, okay? For the ladies, there's only so many shoes you need, okay? I said ladies, right? I meant the lady anointing. Um, 
Okay. You don't like that one, Dave? No. It's branding, though, for you, isn't it? It's branding, yeah. It's branding and awareness. It's, yeah, it's on your marketing budget on your P&L shoes. So, so finance is easy. Just make more than you need and then ask the Lord where to give it. Right? That, like, like, like you just, the number one question that I'll get asked at a conference is, right, should I tithe on my gross, my net, my GP, my own? I'm like, I said, well, what did the Apostle Paul say? The Apostle Paul said, purpose in your heart on the first day of the week, how much are you going to give away and give it away with joy? You just need to be led by the Spirit on your giving. The Lord will show you where to fund. It will probably be largely your local church. Why? Because nothing worse than having a broke church. All right, so you probably will have a large proportion of your giving towards your spiritual covering in your local house, probably. I wouldn't say that for everybody because some people might have a word from the Lord to do something different. But for the most of us, it's going to be funding our churches. What's really crazy though, if we took this seriously, let's say for example, let's say for example, I know we're not all part of this campus of Hope You See, I assume we're not, but let's say we all were and this was the business people from this campus, let's say. Well, if we all took this seriously and over the next five to 10 years went into the marketplace and built a large business, we're going to make more money than this church could ever spend. Right? So then what are we going to do? Now we can go into amazing community outreach, community work, and disciple the local towns. We just got to stop playing too small here. Does that make sense? So you only need so much finance, and you can keep making and keep making. And I actually think, okay, here's the challenge that I'm going to lay down. I personally believe that we should go into business and give away 100% of our profit, 100, not 90, not reversing the tithing, no, no rubbish like that, 100%. Now, I'm not saying now, get yourself set up, don't, you know, leave an inheritance to your children's children, get to the point where you've, you know, you, you've, you've, you've built some wealth around you, that's fine, you, you can have that stuff. But at some point, I think the greatest test is this, will I go into the marketplace, use the gifts and talents God's put inside me to create wealth and give it all away? And at that point, you're uncorruptible uncorruptible because the hooks can't get inside of you to ruin you does this make sense it's big thinking but it starts really small you only need so much right now all right um and then influence so i mean i don't know this area uh, i feel like i've done a lot of highway driving in 12 hours um these guys would know for some reason we just keep going backwards and forwards to somewhere long long away um and um <laughs> Do they not have a hotel up this end of the... the okay. Um, but within five to ten kilometers of here... Okay, let's get serious for a minute. Last night, there would have been young girls raped. Last night, there would have been women that are super fragile, that are with an abusive man who got belted. And, let's say, vice versa. Okay, let's be honest. Right now, you have... Um, many social distresses in the community and those people would love to see the church who have been preaching for 2,000 years to step into that place and do something about it. So it's not going to happen, by the way, for a pastor. It's, it's not their, it's, it's, it's part of their job. It's definitely like they're, they're, a, they're a spearhead you know, they would be respected in the community. We can't, what I'm saying is we can't leave it to the pastors to do this job. First of all, they can't all, can't all agree on the same book they preach from anyway. 
right? So they, they don't usually play well together to be able to be a united force. Some, some do, most don't. But, but we are out there every day, right? So why don't we, business, the, the kingdom entrepreneurs, link arms with the local mayor and the councillors and the pastors and the prophetic voices and NGOs and whatever and actually go and have influence? And, and here's what I would say. Every single one of you has influence today. But it starts small and grows as your business grows. You don't want to believe the whole world. We're all equal before the Lord. You are equal before the Lord. You're just not equal in the eyes of the marketplace. The bigger the business, the more influence you have in the marketplace. That's a duty you have to go and build a big business so that you can have greater influence in the marketplace. Right? So... Um, so how does that look? It could be as simple as, okay, let's paint a scenario. Let's say you were invited to go and be on the, the parent and teacher committee of a local school, let's say, just pick something random. Um, and you went to one of their meetings and somebody came to that meeting and they said, hey, I'm thinking about buying this series of books for the school library. And you thumb through them and you quickly realize that it's teen fantasy that no 14-year-old boy or girl should be casting their eye over. And so you can be Johnny on the spot and say, well, actually, I don't think that's good for these reasons, but if you're looking for books for the library, I'll go and buy a different series and happily donate them to the school. Now you may be, and by the way, that's, that scenario is this big in the kingdom of God. But here's what we do know. If that book is made available, there will be there will be some 14-year-old boy who will read that story and have a very unrealistic worldview of what marriage is going to look like. And then this person will get married. It won't live up to the fantasy that they consumed. And then their marriage is going to be in tension and probably end up in divorce, right? We can draw a line between those kind of events because we know the power uh, of the mind and, and being poisoned and, and how that plays out in later life. That right there is an example of kingdom business. It's a small one, but you could have that opportunity in your world all the time if you went to look for it. You know, be a member of the Chamber of Commerce. Go and be on the committee. Why? Because you can bring salt to that group, right? For example, this one stood out to me, right? Mergers and acquisitions. Who was that? Was that you? Yeah. That is a disgusting world. <clears throat> generally, do you think God wants somebody to go and be salt and light in amongst uh, an industry that tends to rip each other off? Yep. Do you reckon there could be some influence that somebody could have in that dark place? Right? I mean, engineers, for example. There's only two types of people in the world, according to engineers. Them and everybody else. I met this guy the other day. He said, I'm a, I'm a civil engineer. I said, I've never met one. <laughs> I've never met a civil engineer. <laughs> Every single one of these, right? Every single one of these is a huge opportunity to influence that industry and the way things are done. We are in these places for a reason. We are in them because we can go and speak into those areas. By the way, maybe not greatly. You can't like change the industry body, 
But if you go in there and you stay in there and you talk to people and you get on the board, junior position and climb your way up at some point, at some point you'll be able to shape the conversation that takes place in those, in those worlds, in those industries. And that, by the way, is changing culture. Okay, because we can change it from the inside out just by going and being. Now, please also understand that, that those are really small examples of cultural change and influence. Um, has anybody ever heard of Gina Reinhardt? Right, it's got that struggling little mining company over, over the others, right? Um, if, if, I was, if I wanted to speak to Scott Morrison on Monday morning, uh, I would ring Canberra and I would say, hi, uh, my name's Wes, I'm trying to do some good stuff around the country. And the, the, the receptionist would say, thanks, I'll take your details and somebody will get back to you. And they would, right? I would get a phone call in, in two weeks um, from the intern T-boy, uh, who says, sorry, Scott's busy and he can't talk to you. That, that's, that's how that's playing out, okay? No worries. What if Gina wanted to speak to Scott at nine o'clock on Monday morning? Does he take her call? Yeah, within three minutes. What's the difference between me and Gina Reinhardt? About $15.9 billion. <laughs> 350,000 staff, sits on the board of Fairfax, own half the stations in the Northern Territory. I mean, and here's somebody that would probably deny Christ who has that kind of influence. So why is that not us? Why is that not us? I'll tell you why it's not us. Because we've swum in the shallow end of the pool thinking all I've got to do is run a revival meeting, chase rubies, gold dust and fairies around the room, hoping that that's the way to populate heaven because that's all that needed, because Jesus come back tonight. We have bought the short-term lie, and our behavior maps to our desire. And if our desire is Jesus come back tonight, then our behavior maps to that, which is we have very short-term goals. We don't pay the price. We don't think 10 years out. All we think about is the local revival meeting. And I see people that, you know, they'll put their hands up and run glory tunnels and everyone falls around in the spirit and they lay all over the floor and they giggle and somebody will be on the fiddle. And the whole time that that's going on, the whole time that that's going on, our community is getting flogged by the enemy. So it's time for a wake up, right? I guess it's very hard to do two, like two one-hour blocks. My shortest seminar is normally 20 hours. And so I'd love to go so much deeper, but time probably pretty much won't allow it. So I was supposed to do 20 minutes of q and I'm going to do 15 minutes of Q&A in a minute. And I, w- I just want to talk about one more thing very, very quickly. You need to understand spiritual warfare in the marketplace. And I, I, don't, I don't have the luxury of time to teach this in full. Um... But you need to know the enemy, right? When the Australian Defence Force spends a large amount of effort, money and time learning who they're up against, getting intel on who they're up against and their strategy so that they can combat that strategy and win. Like that's an earthly battle. Well, that's a great picture of our spiritual battle that we are in every single day. And when you decided to be a business owner, Um, and a Christian, and then a kingdom business owner, you put a massive target on yourself. Because what the enemy knows 
is that as long as we're having revival meetings, he's not that bothered. Because we're all just playing silly buggers, you know, with ourselves in a broom, hived off from everybody else. What he does know is that when a kingdom-minded believer starts being profitable, they're going to use their finance and influence for good. And that's when start, stuff starts getting real, real, real weird real, real soon, right? And, and, and so, <clears throat> so the battle is real. Our scripture tells us the enemy will never stop. So if you stop fighting spiritually, but the enemy will never stop fighting, you're going to lose. I mean, I could get my five-year-old daughter to understand that if two uh, countries went to war and one of them was prepared to vacate and leave, the country that stays would win. So if we are vacating the battle because we're not fighting and we're not standing down, so if we're prepared to vacate and the enemy's not, we wonder why we look around and he's had, he could just pick off our communities one by one. Why? Because we're not fighting for them. Right, Because our behavior maps to our intention of who cares, get salvations, Jesus come back tonight. Right? So, so how do we do this warfare thing? The first thing we have to understand is that warfare only works. Warfare only has any power because Jesus already won. This is not based on your performance, how much sin there is in the camp. This is not based on whether you have done enough of anything. This is not like, well, you read seven scriptures a day, you'll have more spiritual warfare than the dude that reads four. It's got, listen, it has no bearing on your performance. Because if it did, we would suck, right? The only reason why spiritual warfare and standing down the enemy has any power is because Jesus said it's finished, and it was And all you and I are doing 2,019 years later is declaring a victory that already took place to an enemy that knows they've already lost. Say that again. In the Old Testament, uh, God said to Adam, go and take dominion. And the word dominion is the word exousia. In the New Testament, the word turns up again. Jesus says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. And the word authority is the same word as the word dominion, and it's the word exousia. If you want a definition of exousia, it's a superhuman token of power. Superhuman token of power. It's a superhuman ability to have power, meaning that it doesn't come out of our humanness. It comes out of a collaboration with the super, right? So you and I... if you've ever done an organizational chart for a company, you'll know that there's, you know, there's the CEO at the top or the you know, managing director or the owner, and then there's the departments, and then under the departments, there's the department heads, and then under the department heads, there's the people, and you get this basically like a blueprint of the organization. Well, there's one of those in heaven too. Now, well, I don't want to have a, a, a debate about who's in the top box because some are like, it's God, and some are like, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. No, they're all in one. Okay, let's just put them in the top box. And underneath them is us, and underneath us is angels, and underneath angels in the pecking order is the occult. And Scripture tells us that the occult has levels as well because there's principalities, rulers, and powers, right? You and I are supposed to take dominion over that lot, right? So that's where our authority comes from. It comes from the fact that we have been placed above them So we are basically the middle ground between declaring the voice of the person above us. 
God's above us, already has the victory, says to us, occupy until I come. All we're doing is being a mouthpiece and standing down the enemy to the people that we've been given authority over. I feel like I've lost half of them. I'll go back to beating them up with pastor jokes or something. Um, <laughs> if you will be, the enemy is stealing from you right now if you're not standing, them down, standing him down. And he's raping and pillaging four areas of your life, which I won't go into in great detail, but I'll tell you, they are your opportunities, stealing your opportunities, stealing your tenders, quotes, okay? He is raping and pillaging your gifts and talents because if he can't take your salvation, he will play for making your gifts overextend. Let me give an example of that. He will make sure that when money does come, that you fall in love with the money, ruining the very gift that got you the money in the first place. So he will make sure that you fall in love with cash and status and pride if you're not careful. And the very person that you relied on to bring you the increase will be the person you forget about because you think you're good. And if you want a reminder of that, go back to Deuteronomy 6 to 8 where he says 473,000 times, do not forget the Lord your God. Okay, we have to remember that when he brings us prosperity, we can't start thinking we're any good. The third place that he will steal from you will be uh, your mind. He'll get you so confused and foggy with so many competing voices that you don't know which way to go. And the fourth place, fourth place is going to steal is your family. Because while you're out there trying to crush it in the business world, he'll go home and steal your kids. And by the way, it's not kingdom business to go and build a billion dollar corporation, fund everything in the world, but your kids are injecting heroin in their eyeballs. That's not success from God's point of view. So we have to be able to balance and blend the important things of life. Um, and, I, and in my experience, as somebody who got it wrong in my early years of doing too much business and neglecting my wife and my first child and nearly being on the brink of this isn't working and I don't even know who my wife is and vice versa, and but we got help so we were, we, we've ended up being okay. As somebody who got it wrong, when I honoured my family and decided to put them first, my business has prospered faster because there's an honouring from heaven that I've still got to work hard. I've still got to do the smarts. I've still got to do the, the hard stuff. But when I decided to put more emphasis on what matters, um, then I just saw my businesses grow by default. And, and that makes sense to me that God would want families and, and, and people to be connected before money was ever made. So you, now, by the way, let me give you, I just want to give you one very quick example because I know I'm, I don't have a huge amount of time left. Um, you need to speak out your spiritual warfare this is not something you say in your head. We live in a voice-activated kingdom. The whole planet exists because he spoke, right? Jesus said it was finished. He didn't think it. When Nehemiah saw the dry bones, he spoke to them. We live in a speaking, word-based, out loud kingdom. And that means that you actually need to start standing the enemy down with your voice. And by the way, feel free to get angry because there's nothing good about the enemy um, and it, you can pin any bad thing on him because even if it wasn't him, I'm happy to give him the negative press. So um, basically, let me just give an example. For me, if I'm going to a sales meeting or an opportunity, I'm standing the enemy down and I'll be driving to that meeting and I'm starting doing shakamundas and rubber duckies and all those things that we do. Um, and, and basically, here's, just to give an example, and by the way, it's not my words that matter. It's not my words, I know that, because Russians don't speak English. So it's not the words that matter. 
right? Somebody else could say the same thing with the same unction with different words and it would have the same power because it's about the unction and the authority that it comes with and not the actual words I use. So I'll be driving to a meeting and I'll be saying, devil, you have, you know, I'm silencing you right now from this transaction. And I stand you down and you've got to bow your knee to me right now. And I revoke any authority you think you have in this transaction. You cannot minister to this person either way to mess it up. I stand you down. I silence you. Go back to the pigs, you filthy mongrel. You fleabag enemy. You've got no place here. That's how I talk, okay? Just to give an example. And what typically happens is out of that, um, I just start speaking in the spirit. It's almost like this righteous anger comes up and then all of a sudden it's, you know, shuck of this and shuck of that and, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and that'll just go for a little while. And, and by the way, you know, if you don't have the gift of tongues, firstly, go get it and ask for it. And if you don't, that's fine. It's not like that's the deciding factor here. It's just in me that kind of rises up because I start to get ticked off. Now, now please understand that I have the runs on the board to say that when I do spiritual warfare over my opportunities, that I get them. When I forget, I miss them. I've seen... I, I've seen the, the black and white too often. It's too, I've seen it too much when I just forget to be on point. And, and, and then you get all these maybes and you're chasing each other around the world and everyone's playing phone tag for the next three years. You know, So when I do do warfare, I'm like, Lord, if this deal is ordained by you, it will go through. By the way, if it's not, don't let it go through. I don't want a client that's gonna be a nightmare and a disaster and a distraction. So I'll just fight for what is intended to be mine from heaven, right? Now, here's, here's, here's what you have to understand. The reason why I know it works is because it's a non-negotiable to the enemy. It's not whether I've mustered up enough power to do warfare well. It's not whether I have read enough of my Bible. It's not whether I know enough Greek or enough Hebrew. That, that means nothing, nothing to this. It's because all authority was given to me that it works. And here's what I know, 100% of times that you stand the enemy down, the enemy will pack up his bags and leave. 100% of the time. Because it's a non-negotiable for the enemy. He has nothing. It's the Wizard of Oz. It's a big booming voice. But when you pull back the curtain, it's a little ferret. You, you, you have to have that in your mind that the authority that you were given is that powerful that 100% of the time that you stand the enemy down, the enemy must stand down. Because if you don't get that in your mind and you think it's performance-based, you will discount yourself because you don't think you're good enough, clear enough, big enough, whatever, whatever, whatever. This isn't about you. That's the beauty of it. He didn't say it's nearly finished. He didn't say it's quite, you know, like mostly finished. Um, and, and so, and so you, you've got to meditate on that authority because if you don't take it, the enemy will. And the enemy can only have an area in your life where you've abdicated responsibility. Understand that? When you leave that door open, he'll take it. So let's go to Questions. Uh, there's a, there's, I think there's a book out there called Supernatural Thinking. Um, and, um, oh, we have some here. Um, and, 
basically, I mean, by the way, that's not the only way to get your good identity, but, but identity is what the book talks about because if we don't walk in our identity, we will lose uh, or have very little impact. So it is an identity issue. You, you know what? I, in my experience, people don't need to go through like a 19-week course to learn their identity. Some people just need permission. And when they hear something like what I just said, they go, that makes total sense. I want to go and get amongst the enemy right now. And they'll learn the identity as they go because they'll see it. The only reason why I can stand up with this authority and know that it takes place is I've seen it too many times. It's a tangible for me. When I stand the enemy down, I win. When I don't, I, you know, it gets messy. And, uh, and so that's all you need to do. God will show you the identity. You just got to start. Talking about a secular environment, um, chairman and board, governance, top down, how do you bring that thinking into that environment? In my experience, the best way to get the ear of the secular world, if you like, um, is to bring them results. If you can bring them results first, you actually get their attention. So going in there, I mean, not, not suggesting you would, but there are many a weak Christians who take their Bibles to those meetings and start bashing people with like, we can't do that because thus saith the Lord. There could be a grace actually on some people in some circumstances to be that bold. In my experience, when I'm dealing with the ungodly and I get them results, they all of a sudden want to know everything else. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a client in Brisbane. They run a crane hire business, mobile cranes. Family business, started with one crane, took them to four, 10 times the revenue. Didn't talk about my faith, although back then, it was, this is a while ago, there was some pretty weird stuff on YouTube of me talking like this. But they never bothered them, and, they ne and we never brought it up. But I'll tell you what's super interesting is because I was able to help them grow their business and give them the thing that they wanted the most, which was a bigger business and more cash flow and more money, um, this lady rings me and says, it was a Saturday morning. And as a business coach, most business coaches are trying to work out how to build the most and do the least. My measure of success as a business coach is from my secular clients is I want the Saturday morning call. So this woman rings me and she's like, I've just found out my kids are, you know, whatever, on drugs and, and it's hectic and we've had to go down to the cell and grab one of them. Can we talk? Because she said, you seem to have wisdom in so many areas. She even used the words wisdom, which is weird. You have, the, you have wisdom for so many areas that I'm pretty sure you'd have some for this. And I was able to walk her through identity and a whole bunch of things. And, 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 and you know what? I got to be an amazing witness to somebody who was so closed off to God. Why? Because I showed them how to give them what they wanted first. And I cared for them enough to stay with them. And I cared for them enough to, to see the results come through. And out of that, it was, it was great. So, so my only answer for how do you minister to them would be take a long-term view, get in there and earn their respect, get wins on the board. And then when you are with them, they're way more likely to know rather than some stranger that's just got opinions. Hey, was um, I have felt like uh, resistance really ramps up when we start spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. Is that real? Yep. How does that fit with what you just said about he packs his bags and leaves? <clears throat> um, well, first of all, if you've experienced doing warfare and it, the battle gets more intense, 
what did you just find out? Yeah. <laughs> it's really real, right? <laughs> you know, like, like that is the enemy being an absolute muppet and playing his hand, isn't it? You know, like, I remember, I, remember I, I got saved, and it was in a uniting church, and, and so that's interesting. And um, I didn't say good or bad, and I'm so grateful for those seven months until somebody handed me two Hillsong CDs. In fact, in fact Darlene sang on the blue one uh, what, with the scripty writing. What was it called? Anyway, for all you've done, was it? Anyway, you should know. Anyway, not a groupie much. Um, anyway, somebody gave me a CD of that and, 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 I, and I played it and I, I moved. Um, and then I kind of, in that transition, probably added a little bit of my former life back into my life. Just a little bit, nothing heavy. And I remember thinking, I don't like this anymore. So I was at a different church. They did an altar call for a recommitment. And I was like, you know what, Lord? I've let some stuff in over the last eight or nine months. I'm not a huge fan of it. And I want to I wanna hit reset with you. That night, I had my, my first experience where the enemy turned up in my bedroom. I've had maybe six or seven of them, maybe more. And that was the first one, which was really scary the first time. And, uh, and I remember waking up in the morning after a two-hour ordeal thinking, enemy, you're an idiot. You have just confirmed to me that as I've stepped closer to the Lord and it's made you upset that I'm on the right path. Like... Okay, so that doesn't answer your question. It was just a war story. Um, but I feel great. Um, I, I said before that within the occult, there are principalities, powers, and rulers, different levels of authority that they have. And so when you take an enemy down and you start that journey, it would not surprise me in the occult if one rings the other and says, I've been booted out of this guy's life, but you should go and have a go. Right? You just got promoted. And then it will become more intense. That's my only explanation for, for that. All right, my time is up. I could do more questions. Question or story? Is that a question or a statement? I'd go to the meeting and I'd help him out. I'm not gonna I am not gonna sit across the table and demonize a man for his sin. Because then he's gonna do it straight back to me. He has authority to measure mine. Does that make sense? Like that's not my criteria. My criteria of who I do business with is not whether they're gay. Now, if he wants to push something on me that because that's that doesn't actually jeopardize my morals. Now, if there is something coming the other way, I'm out because I have this, you know, this set of this code and I'm not going to break my code for you. But how the heck are the people in the world going to get an experience of the kingdom if we don't go? In the world, not of the world. Association without assimilation. Now, when they try and take you down a path that's destructive and eats away at your faith, it's a no, you're out. It's a non-negotiable. That's the test. We can all go and get in the arena but will it corrupt us over time? Do we get caught up in that, right? Gideon had to go to the enemy camp to overhear God's strategy for how to, to, to win them over. Does that make sense? Most Christians today who want to be Gideons and they say they're Gideons, 
would not have the body parts to go into the enemy camp and listen to God's strategy for them. That's what that is. Now, if they make you, don't, do not bow your knee to Baal. So whatever happens in there, you've got to be prepared to walk. But don't not go just because he's gay and wants to do philanthropy. Isn't the wealth of the wicked stored up for the righteous? Wouldn't it make sense that God would use a gay man who's corrupt, if he is, I don't know, to make a load of money and go and do benevolent work with it? God will get his glory through whatever he wants. Love you. Good job. Thank you. Good job. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully there's some nuggets in there and you took the time to journal them and you'll make them practical in your business moving forward. Hey, just a reminder, would you do me a favor and go and write uh, uh, your thoughts on the podcast, review it and subscribe. That would mean the world to me. I'll have another episode out to you real soon. 